Well, good morning, new community. Um, it is such an honor, such a joy to be with you here today. Thank you for that kind introdu introduction from Pastor Peter. I've known Pastor Peter for a long time, known you guys for a long time, known you since you started here in Logan Square, and I've kind of followed along with your journey ever since that time. And uh, it's an honor to be invited into this space with you to talk in this time that we're in as a society, as a city, as our neighborhoods here, uh, and talking about a term, a subject matter that um, I think is of incredible importance, not just to society at large, but to the Bible, uh, to what it means to follow Jesus. And it's a term, it's, let's just name it up front, um, continue with this theme we've already been doing. We're gonna be talking about white supremacy today. And this is a term, realistically, that in most non-black settings tends to be a very triggering term, a very charged term, um, uh, very misunderstood term. Oftentimes, the only foothold people have is to consider the most extreme violent forms of it. You know, you think KKK or you think, you know, rallies and tiki torches and stuff like that, which certainly is connected to the most extreme forms of it. But to uh, center those types of expressions of it as the norm uh, causes us to dilute and minimize the pervasive nature of it everywhere. And so we're going to take on head on. Um, um, as your church has been doing, but take head on this really critical concept. And so a lot of backstory I would love to share with you. If we had time, I'd love to hear kind of what your journey has been around this um, in terms of your own racial cultural identity, in terms of how you've interacted with this idea of white supremacy. Um, love to share kind of some of the backstory for me. Keep it simple. In fact, I'm going to tell you where my journey began for it. And it was in a place you probably wouldn't expect a journey to understanding and grappling with white supremacy to begin. But for me, it began with a wedding, interestingly enough. Um, in fact, when I first met Pastor Peter, I was uh, working at Willow Creek Community Church, which is a large mega church out in the suburbs here of Chicago, northwest suburbs. And uh, when I came on staff, I think I was 24 when I came on staff, um, one of the things that was like a real big challenge was doing weddings. That was pretty scary. I kind of thought of that as like more grown up than anything I could do. And just the fourth or fifth wedding I ever did was also the first cross-cultural wedding I ever did. And it was a guy who was friends with his parents had immigrated here from India, and so he was second generation Indian. He was marrying a white woman, so it was the first cross-cultural wedding I had done. Although I hadn't even really considered that until they started brainstorming about ways that they wanted to each bring their own culture into the wedding experience. So my friend told me, uh, particularly at the uh, wedding rehearsal the night before this wedding, you're gonna get a deep dive into South Asian Indian culture. And I was really excited about that, and indeed did get that deep dive. Um, the food, the scents, the, the, the music, um, I'm, don't have, I stereotypically don't have much rhythm, but they even got me out there for their Dandia dance, a stick dance. It was just this kind of very magical experience. And so it was this real highlight of getting to have this deep dive into his culture. And so as the night was coming to an end, I went up to him and I just said, hey, I just want to thank you so much, not only for letting me officiate this wedding, but for inviting me into this like cultural experience. I said, you know, being here and seeing the way your family and extended family operates, uh, it makes me so jealous that you have a culture and that I don't. I really wish I had a culture too. And to set up what my friend said next, it's helpful to understand a little bit about him. He was a very gregarious guy, very funny, very rarely actually talked about serious things. Whenever he got serious, everybody knew something was happening. This was the last moment I was expecting him to get so serious because up to this moment, he had been so jovial and laughing and stuff like that, but he got very serious. He put his hand on my shoulder. He's a really tall guy. He put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, Daniel, not only do you have a culture, but when your culture comes in contact with other cultures, your culture always wins. One of the greatest gifts you could give me for my wedding is to become serious about learning your own culture. And then got happy again, rolled off onto the dance floor and just left me sitting there. 
this open door into a whole new world that I had to decide whether or not I wanted to walk through. Now, if I'm honest, up till the age 24, there were dozens, maybe hundreds of moments where I came in contact with what I'm gonna eventually describe as white supremacy, where I should have been asking the questions that I would ask from that point forward, but you know, I'm not gonna talk about white privilege at all today, but other than this 30 second kind of acknowledgement, my friend, a pastor on the south side of Chicago here, Reverend Julian DeChazier, he defines just privilege in general as the ability to walk away, which when I think of it like that, I see even with some of the difficulties in my own background, I had privilege all the way through in the sense that I always had the privilege to choose whether or not I wanted to acknowledge and to wrestle with this idea of white supremacy. Because of the way society, because of the way we're organized, I could choose to interact with or choose not to. And up till age 24, I had chosen every time I had the chance to, to not interact with it. But something, something even though it was such an, a simple comment that he made at this wedding rehearsal, it literally changed the course of my life. Um, if I'm honest, it was not a desire to learn that really drove me from that moment, at least not right away. It was really much more of a defensiveness that drove me. Uh, for one, I was a little bit offended that he said, I have a culture. I was like, what is that supposed to mean that I have a white culture? You know, I was fairly connected to my Irish roots. Um, I saw that as very different than many of the other European origin stories in the United States. So lumping all of us in together didn't totally feel fair. But what especially felt uncomfortable was this notion that he said that when my culture comes in contact with other cultures, mine always wins. And so I felt the need to discredit him, honestly. And so I began thinking about culture and white culture and the way people react and interact together in a way that went beyond anything I had ever considered before. And um, I tell this not only because of my origin story, but it's what happened. This took me a lot of years, what happened next. And I hope if you're not already doing this, that you will do this and it'll happen much faster than you. Here's what happened for me. I was trying to develop a biblical framework for understanding these concepts of ethnicity and culture and how it is that we relate together, in particular this notion of whiteness and eventually white supremacy. Um, and what I found in my white Christian evangelical circles, and I know that's kind of like a charge word itself in these days, evangelical, but that's my upbringing. I'm the son of an evangelical pastor. Um, I'm part of an evangelical denomination, as you all are. We're part of the same one. And um, uh, what became really apparent to me is that in at least the orbits I was in, and it was fairly wide range of churches, um, this was a conversation that was just not happening at all. In fact, as I was trying to interact with this from a biblical perspective, I did what I did when I wanted biblical wisdom on any subject matter. I looked for books that spoke to it. I listened, there's probably four or five preachers who I pretty regularly listened to. <laughs> Podcasts didn't exist back then, but I would literally order their tapes and listen to these messages. So I went to the catalogs of some of my favorite preachers. What I realized literally there was not one preacher in my network that had ever done not only a series had never done a sermon on white supremacy um had never given any kind of significant biblical reflection on the social construct of race and how we as believers need to interact with that and so it was this kind of wild time because i really wanted to base my ideas on the bible but there just wasn't anything there at that time so what i had to do was kind of move outside of church circles and more at that time it was really almost exclusive in academic circles where the good thinking around race and white white supremacy was happening and so it created this very bizarre experience where i was trying to find a way to be biblically grounded in how to think about whiteness and eventually white supremacy couldn't find it there went to these kind of secular academic institutions and so i lived in this kind of real weird duality for a while where Bible teachers didn't talk about white supremacy. Those who did talk about white supremacy didn't believe in the Bible. <laughs> I had to figure out not only how to marry these two, but even to, and this is still a problem to some degree, and it's changing a little bit, and I'm glad for that, and certainly we're in a moment right now where the overall conversation is higher, but it created this not only duality, but the truth of it is when I kind of left Christian circles to learn about white supremacy, those who were in the circles I was 
leaving to learn about this particular subject matter, started to say that I was at risk of a social gospel, that I was at risk of being too liberal, um, that I was at risk of being too political. And so not only did they have no information to give me from a biblical perspective, I was somewhat maligned for even needing to go find it somewhere else. So I'm not gonna say anything more about that. That was about a 10 year, maybe not quite that, but it was a long period of trying to find my way to a biblical framework for how to think about this. But just to bottom line it, I'm gonna use, Pastor Peter said something last week. He said a lot of things last week. Um, it was a very full sermon. I don't know if it's like that every single week, but um, uh, that, that, was, that was a very robust sermon. But one of the things he drew out was Colossians 1 which became kind of a life passage for me, Colossians 1, to refresh your memory. It's this hymn, this worship song from the Apostle Paul talking about the magnificence, the supremacy, the cosmic beauty and majesty of who Jesus Christ is. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the head of the church. And he goes through all these descriptors of who Jesus is, the ones who's reconciling all things to himself, seen and unseen, visible and invisible, heaven and on earth, so that he might have supremacy over all things. And I came to this, it almost felt like a second conversion for me. I came to the second conversion, oh wow, white supremacy isn't some fringe group of extremists. White supremacy is an ideology, a, a, a stronghold, a principality that is in direct competition with Jesus for lordship and supremacy overall. And I think until we see it that way, it's going to be very difficult to wrap our minds around how significant it is that from a biblical perspective, we take this on. And that's one of the reasons, even though some people, you know, get nervous around this term white supremacy or dodge around a little bit, I'm like, no, we have to use this term. It's defining itself, right? It's, it's declaring its intention to compete with Jesus Christ for supremacy over all things. So you can like it, not like it, think about it, not think about it. It doesn't really matter. It has already declared itself as what I would argue, not only in current days, but for 400 years plus now, as the primary threat to Jesus Christ's claim of being supreme over all things. All right, and so now that's, that's where I got to, and that's in just about the next 20 minutes or so, what I want to try to make a case for biblically um, is the case, and also kind of how we can see how far this reaches and kind of what it looks like for us to move into it. So I'm gonna turn a corner. I'm gonna use a passage that for me is the most helpful starting point for thinking about this. Um, you know, growing a church, and you may have had some of this, and you may have had the same experience. Growing in church, it didn't matter what the question was that the pastor posed. The answer was always Jesus. So if you didn't know what the answer was, if you said Jesus, you had a 95% chance you were going to get the right answer. Um, what felt silly growing up is now the only thing that matters to me. If the answer to any question is not Jesus, I'm not interested in it. That's just the truth for me. So even as critical as white supremacy is, if this isn't something that's close to the heart of Jesus, it's going to be difficult for me to understand how to interact with it because that's what my whole life is organized around, is fully surrendering and submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord, who's supreme over all things. That is why I want to, to open to Mark chapter 3. Each of the four gospel accounts uh, at the beginning point talk through kind of famously how um, Jesus, under the direction of the Father, goes to a mountain and prays about who are going to become the 12 disciples, the, the, the ones that Jesus is going to invest as primary leadership skills and Bible skills and, you know, becoming people who exhibit fruit of the Spirit, all the things that come with being prepared for a mission. So, so there's this prayerful selection of the 12 disciples. I like Mark's version. Um, Mark, you may know this, Mark just in general, 
when compared to the other three gospel writers. Mark says things with a sense of brevity. <laughs> he gets to the main point very quickly. Some like that, some prefer the you know, more elaborate language that others use. But in this case, I like how Mark bottom lines this. this. This is Mark's account of how Jesus selected the 12 disciples. But for this conversation, more importantly, what Jesus was forming them for. Or to say it a different way, how they understood what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Which I would say is exactly the same way we should understand how to be a disciple. I'm not saying this is the only way to think about discipleship, but it's a way, and it's the way we use at our church at River City to um, talk about discipleship. So here's, here's Mark's account of Jesus appointing the 12. This is Mark chapter 3, um, verses 13 through 15. Mark says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to them those that he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority over demons, all right? Short and sweet, that's Mark's definition, Mark's description of not only how Jesus selected and appointed the 12 disciples, but how he communicated the basics of discipleship to them, all right? Now, um, I, I want, you guys talk about discipleship all the time, so I don't need to give like a comprehensive definition of discipleship. I'm just gonna kind of tag these very quickly as I go by. Um, there's four ideas in here about discipleship that feel really important. The first three, I'm just barely gonna pass by. First, it seems really important that discipleship happens in the context of community. Right now, I'm sure Jesus had some really interesting and important conversations at a one-on-one -on -one level with him and the disciples, but for the most part, the formation that was going to happen for them was in the context of community, right, for him to, to give the best of what he had and to form them in his image so they could be sent out for mission. He did it in the context of community. That feels really important. Secondly, it says he appointed them that they might first be with him. And that word with, you can just jump right to it, right past it, but in so many ways, I'd say that's the essence of the gospel right there. That through what Jesus Christ was going to eventually do on the cross and through his defeating death and rising from the dead, Holy Spirit being released, we are now invited to be with God in all these intimate ways to know that we're children of God, to know that God's presence dwells within us, to know that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is inside of us, to learn how on a daily basis to hear the voice of God, to live that out in my daily life, to engage with scripture and to invite the spirit to reveal that in transformative ways so I know how to be with God as God is already with me. I think that's the core of everything. That's the foundation. That's why Jesus started there. He wanted his disciples to learn how to be with him and be with God, okay? I think you probably got a good sense of what those words represent already. It's the last two parts that I want to set up here. Um, it really now turns the corner to mission, which we don't see that word in English here, but the word mission, you may know this already, is actually a Latin word, missio. It means to be sent. And so for a thousand years, the only translations we had of the Bible outside of the original language was Latin. So we have a lot of these Latin terms that we use within our Christian vocabulary. And so anytime in English you read the word sent, it's literally the word mission. It is missio. It, it's, that's the whole nature of what sent is. It's not meant to be this once in a lifetime, incredible moment where you hear from the voice of God and sent in this mission. It's actually meant to communicate a daily way of life where as you are with God by the spirit, you are sent into the world to represent God through word and through deed, to bear witness to who he is. And so Jesus affirms this, that he, they were appointed not only to be with him, but to be sent on mission. Sent to do what? That's the last two ideas. First, another familiar one. First, he says to preach, to proclaim the gospel. And that word is not like what I'm doing, lecture style, speaking to a group of people. It's just literally, it's this word to proclaim, right? We are sent to proclaim 
the goodness of the grace of God, the coming of Jesus Christ's kingdom. I fully believe that when we're talking about things like white supremacy and people say, this isn't a biblical thing, we're going to get there in a minute. They say we should be just doing evangelism. We should be talking about Jesus. Absolutely. I totally agree. We should be talking about Jesus, right? That is the foundation of mission, to be talking about Jesus in word and deed. It's this last part. I bet you a lot of you, when you think of what discipleship is, this isn't one of the first things that rolls off your tongue when you think of what mission is. Preach, you can probably get there. But what does Mark say next? Mark says he appointed them to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, how many of you think about that in your daily expression of a disciple of Jesus Christ, sitting in the words of Mark saying, you know what? Jesus Christ has given me authority to speak to dark principalities and powers in this world, which we may not be comfortable with that, but the Apostle Paul sure was. He said, this is the whole thing. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this dark world. Jesus, according to Mark, this was the normative expression of discipleship to not only proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, but have authority to drive out dark demonic powers from this world. All right, now you might picture something like from poltergeist or something like that, or an exorcism when you think of that. But what I want to do is just the next couple minutes, I'm on my way to white supremacy. I would contend there's six or seven ways that I like to get to white supremacy from a biblical perspective. So there's a handful more than what we're doing today. But this is the most important one to me, that we have got to see white supremacy as a demonic power. It is an ideology, but it's an ideology upheld and sustained and protected by supernatural evil. And really, if we believe we follow a supernatural God, it shouldn't be that big of a leap to say that there's also supernatural dark forces in the world that are competing against God's interests, right? It's the whole storyline of the Bible. Right? I do not think you can understand white supremacy without understanding the nature of supernatural evil. And one last kind of big theology push, and then we're going to turn the corner of white supremacy. I don't think you can understand what supernatural evil is without bottom lining it to the most important word. All right, so I'm cutting some corners coming, coming to this, but I, here's what I would say. If you want to understand how supernatural evil works in the world, there's one word that's more important than any other word, and it's the word lies. Right? Supernatural evil doesn't primarily happen through occupation of another person or through, you know, again, some kind of a poltergeist kind of a thing where you like, you know, in a horror movie where you're seeing demonic kind of powers or something like that. The way supernatural evil works is through lies. All right, now I'm going to give three examples of this that I think summarizes the whole Bible's teaching on this. These will be quick, and then we're going to do some exploration of the nature of how white supremacy works. Just a minute or two on each one. First, when sin, when evil, when darkness is first introduced to us, it's in the Garden of Eden, right? Even in an environment that reflects the perfect beauty of God, where abundance is the norm, where God's presence is unbroken with people and with creation, evil shows up in the form of a serpent, and in, even in the most perfect environment that there is, evil comes in and disrupts it, not because evil has intrinsic power, but because the power of lies, if we don't pay attention to them, can disrupt so many things, right? All that serpent does is call into question, what did God say, right? Why can't you eat off these other trees? What is God holding out on you? He's deceiving, he's distorting, right? He's separating them from truth. And one of the reasons I like to start there when remembering how evil works is it shows, for one, evil is not nearly as scary or as powerful as we have to give it credit for. Here's what I mean by that. When the serpent shows up in the Garden of Eden, here's what the serpent doesn't do, and I think this is important. The serpent doesn't say, oh, so that's God's garden, huh? That's what he's got for you? Well, now let me show you my garden. And you pick which garden you like better. Evil doesn't have that kind of power. Evil can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus. All evil can do is lie. And yet, 
in the same breath where I say let's not overstate its power, I'd say let's not understate the power of lies. Because lies, even in a state of perfection where Adam and Eve had unlimited and just perfect access to the presence of God, lies were enough to bring the whole thing down. When Adam and Eve agreed with those lies and aligned with those lies, Eve toppled, uh, uh, the Garden of Eden toppled. All right, uh, second example, I'm going to do this one really quick just because I want to show the plumb line of this. The Garden of Eden kind of replayed out would be the temptation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, another one that all four gospel accounts uh, record. What I want to say about this is that before the temptation, all four accounts start with Jesus experiencing the presence of God at the baptism, where the voice of God speaks over Jesus and says, you're my son, you're my beloved, I take delight and pleasure in you. And then from there, he goes to duel literally with the devil, with temptation, with, with, with the evil one. And there's three temptations, each that are unique in their own right. But the common thread with them is a single lie trying to create distance between what God had just spoken over Jesus and what the devil wanted to separate him from. Right? The devil says, if you are the son of God, key word there being if, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Right? But it's not really about the stones. It's really an attack on what Jesus had just spoken to him, of what God had just spoken to him. If you are the son of God. Right? It's lies. That's how the devil works. Right? Now, I said I'm going to do three. I am. But let, let, me, let me start to crisscross now white supremacy and looking at supernatural evil. And let me give a working definition of white supremacy. These, you know, these will come up. We're going to start getting very slide heavy now um, for the, the last bit of this. But here's a working definition. This is kind of put together from a few different definitions. But we can, we can and should try to understand white supremacy at a more comprehensive level, what I'm going to say here right now. Um, but I think we also have to have kind of a working foundation to understand it. And so let me just read the slide that you'll see here. White supremacy is the evil principality that denies and distorts the image of God inherent in all human beings based upon a set of lies, and there's the key word, right? That's really what holds this whole definition together. Based upon a set of lies that assigns superiority to whiteness and inferiority to blackness, and which then measures all human value based on perceived proximity to these two poles. Now, there's a lot of expressions of how white supremacy works. There's a lot of bad fruit that has been created from the root problem of white supremacy. Those are all worth describing. Those are all worth having other conversations of. I'm not minimizing them at all, but I'm trying to take it to the root. The root of what white supremacy is, is it's simple. It's, it's like the Garden of Eden. It's simple and you're totally powerful. It's simple in that white supremacy is built on a set of lies. It says, it's a complete contradiction. The Bible says human value and worth is based on the imago Dei, another Latin term, the image of God, the inherent goodness and uh, um, dignity and value that comes not from what another person says about you, but because of who you are created in the image and likeness of the almighty creator God. That's the biblical perspective of human value. White supremacy at every level challenges and tries to topple that. White supremacy says, no, that's not where inherent goodness comes from. That's not where inherent value comes from. Where your worth as a human being comes from is where you fall on this racial hierarchy. And since its very beginning, most people would argue that it's 400 years old or less because it was so built around slavery. White supremacy, the lies are so clear at the top and the bottom. The top of white supremacy, and which, again, why I think the term is important, the top of it says whiteness is inherently more valuable, more godlike, more intelligent, more capable. 
and this is a whole separate conversation what I'm gonna say next, we don't have full time for this, but really you can't understand white supremacy fully if you don't attach it to the idea of anti-blackness, right? White supremacy does not, uh, does not assault human beings at all in the same way. It is built on a hatred and scorn of black people. This is always, it's, it, it, this is its own whole conversation. It's what, what was needed in order to justify the barbaric system of slavery. And so the top is that superior traits are assigned to whiteness, inferior traits are assigned to blackness. Black people, and I'm sorry, this, I should give a trigger warning before I do this, because I know there's a lot of black members in this body and that's, I know you know these truths, but it's hard hearing a white guy up here just so nakedly say this. But I also am always, my black brothers just always say, no, we have got to name these things with clarity, right? So I apologize for it. I, I, I give, you know, bless you to do whatever you need as, as we're kind of now, because for the rest of this, we're just gonna, in a painful way, look at how consistent this messaging is of white superiority and black inferiority. But you don't understand white supremacy without understanding that it's built on anti-blackness. It's this was our sermon last week at church. We had a race panel, and this is how two of our black leaders said it. White, or, white supremacy is organized to steal, kill, hunt, and kill me. That is its purpose. It has always been its purpose. Now, I'm not minimizing the impact it has on Latinx folks. I'm not impact, minimizing the impact it has on Asian and API folks. I'm not minimizing the impact it has on mixed race folks. But the impact it has is found in this spectrum of the lie of supremacy or superiority of whiteness, the lie of inferiority of blackness, and it's how the devil keeps this thing moving in society. Now, one, one last passage, and this is going to kind of set up what we're going to do. Uh, I want to go to John chapter 8, which is the clearest depiction of the devil as a liar. And again, you'll see this on your screen. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees when he says this. And Jesus says this to them. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, which is what white supremacy is. It's been a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and he's the father of lies. All right, so again, the Bible just so clearly depicts the devil as that he traffics in lies. That's what he does. And Jesus says it three ways. He's a liar. That's plain enough there. But then he says his native tongue is out of lies which for those of you who are bilingual or trilingual or more, you know how significant that is to have a mother tongue, right? To say that his mother tongue is that of lies. But in terms of this conversation on white supremacy, it's the last part. Jesus says he's the father of lies. And here's, here's, here's the bridge I'm trying to draw from the theological explanation we're doing to the description of white supremacy. Anytime an, even a single individual lie is being told to somebody, to you, let's say, and to the degree you agree with that lie, there's something, there's something even demonic about that. Again, I'm not trying to overdo this, but this is, this is daily life. Jesus is trying to free us by his truth from those lies. So anytime there's even a single lie that we're agreeing with, that's spiritually problematic. But what white, the problem of white supremacy is not that there's a single person or even a small group of extremists who believe the lie. It's that this lie has bunched up. It's swarmed together. It's clustered over time. And when you see a lie not just being shared by an individual, not just being shared by a nuclear family, not just being shared by a neighborhood, not just being shared by a city, but by a nation and by generation after generation, you start to get a, a terrifying sense of what Jesus means when he says the devil is the father of lies. Because there is nothing more important to the devil than to keep lies protected 
and to allow them to swarm together, to cluster together, to bunch up in such a way where it almost starts to feel impenetrable. Now, here's a Here's a hard turn I'm going to make because of time. I'm not going to take much time to jump there. I'm just going to go right into it, and this is going to be the final part. But I think you can follow me okay on this. Here's what I'm going to do next. One of the things, you know, in, in the, some of the published stuff I'm doing, this is the purpose I'm really trying to do is show how white supremacy is built on lies. So we could examine the ways the lies have been told through our country's history from a lot of different angles. We could look at the way entertainers or athletes or artists have advanced the lie. So I'm picking just one, politicians. Um, but there's a purpose because politicians at their best are supposed to be representing the spirit of the land, right? And of course, they're only in office because they've been elected by a majority. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show, I think I've got 14 quotes right here. So I'm going to move quickly. And this is it. This is the last kind of exercise. But one of the whole chapters that I'm doing in my next book is showing how all the way back to George Washington up through our present time, politicians in, in, just so I'm clear, this is not partisan. I'm actually literally doing seven Democrat and seven Republican. In fact, the early ones are actually called the Democratic Republican Party. So it was merged even in the beginning. So I am not making partisan statements. In fact, I want you to see there is no, there's not a political answer to this. That does not mean we should be not engaged with politics. But um, there's not like a non-racist party and a racist party. This lie is held by everybody, including you and me. That's really the work we have to do. So I'm going to um, rattle through a series of political statements that have been made about white supremacy, about this racial hierarchy of the supremacy of whiteness, the inferiority of blackness. I think there's one exception where I'm gonna also include one where it's applied to Asian people too, just to show the way that this works. And again, the gravity that this is gonna be hard. Um, it's hard for a couple of reasons. One, just to realize how durable this lie is. I mean, it's been around since the beginning and it doesn't sound any different today than it did in the early stages. Um, secondly, um, to see that it's shared by those that we might wanna vilify and those that we have tended to glorify, right? There's not good people and bad people in this. I mean, some people have done worse stuff, but this lie is held by everybody. And third, it's, it's a little bit depressing to see how pervasive it is, but we're gonna eventually get back to Mark three. This is the authority we're meant to have to speak over this. So these are gonna come up. I'm just gonna invite you to kind of sit in the magnitude of these quotes and then we'll kind of conclude with with a final word from mark three so let's go all the way back to 1814 let's go back to one of the founding fathers thomas jefferson who also had become the third president of the united states um, here's one of his more famous quotes he said amalgamation with the other color with the uh, with the other color produces degradation to which no lover of his country no lover of excellence in the human character can innocently consent now, amalgamation, if that's not an everyday word for you, is intermarrying or, you know, having sexual relations and having a child from that. So when he says amalgamation of the other color, he's describing white people and black people having babies together. And he's saying um, there is a degradation that happens when you mix the superior blood with the inferior blood that nobody who loved their country would subscribe to. And this set the stage for a concept that would come to be known as the one drop rule. One drop rule was not only kind of a shared at the, on the ground thing, it actually became legislation for a while. The one drop of wool said, if you were white and even had just one drop of sub-Saharan blood in you, you were classified as black, which is a profound expression of white supremacy that whiteness is so pure that just literally one, black, one, one drop of black blood would pollute it to the degree that you're now considered black. All right, that's one of the found, that's the same person who said all men are created equal, endowed with inalienable rights to pursue life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? Amalgamation between black and white people is degradation, he called it. Let's go to another founding father, next president, James Madison. Describing black people, he said, generally idle and depraved, appearing to retain the bad qualities of the slaves with whom they continue to associate without acquiring any of the good ones of the whites. 
right? Now, this should become pretty obvious as we do these about the nature of white supremacy in it, where again, what I want you to hear is superior at the top, inferior at the bottom, the way this lie communicates those. I'll just draw a couple words out to show how even th there's, there's these even theological references to it, right? When, he's, when James Madison said, black people are depraved, I mean, that, that's a famous word in Christian vocabulary where that basically says nothing good can come from it. And in contrast, he talks about the goodness that comes with whiteness. All right, here's gonna be a hard one uh, for some of you to hear. 1846, um, Abraham Lincoln, who's our 16th president, I'm jumping ahead for time a little bit, he said this, there is a physical difference, which is he's saying there's a biological innate physical difference between the white race and the black race, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot live, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior, inferior, and I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having this superior position assigned to the white race. You see what he's saying? And many would say he did more legislative good than anybody on this, right? And I'm not trying to discredit that as much as saying you can still be working for this and still be tremendously impacted by the lies of white supremacy, right? He knew he had no chance to be elected without assuring people that he bought into the racial hierarchy of white supremacy. Historically, I want to point this next one out. This comes from the, Judge, the Dred Scott case. This is a Supreme Court Justice, Roger Taney, who was the lead justice on this. Uh, let me read the quote, and I'll explain the significance to it. Um, in the deciding vote on this, he said, Blacks have for more than a century been regarded as beings of an inferior order, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Now, I won't get into the whole history. It's easy to find online, but Dred Scott was... Uh, slave initially and then moved towards states that were starting to free slaves and so he advocated in the in the political system for his own freedom and so the supreme court had to make a decision of black can black people be free can they have equal rights to white people so the supreme court which is supposed to be above partisan differences the supreme court not only said he couldn't be free but here's the logic the judge roger taney and seven of the nine justices who weighed in on this own were slave owners um, he said here's the bottom line black people have always been considered inferior in the united states who are we to challenge that narrative? Black people are inferior, white people are superior, therefore the Supreme Court says black people can never have rights. You see the depth of that? You see the pervasive nature of that? This is a very inflammatory one, but I think it's an important one, not only because of the content, but of its historical significance. Here's 1860, Jefferson Davis. A lot of you are interacting with Dr. Ibram Kendi now, and he wrote his first book off of this quote. Jefferson Davis said this, this government was not founded by Negroes nor for Negroes, but, but, but by white men for white men. As an aside, I totally realize there's very critical gender pieces here too. I'm not trying to minimize that. We're just talking about white supremacy today. Wish we had time to talk about that too. The inequality of the white and black races was stamped from the beginning. Now consider the theological significance of a phrase like that, stamped from the beginning. Can a human being stamp human worth onto another human being? No, he's, he's appealing to the theological order of things, that part of God's very design was the superiorness of white people, the inferiorness of black people, and that it's God's order. And here's, besides the theological overtones of that, um, it's important to understand how this was the central storyline of the Confederacy, right? He became president of the 11 Confederate states that seceded from the United States, and this was the language that got him elected, the claim that this is how God had ordained the human hierarchy to function. 1862, here's a good progressive New York person, 
Horatio Seymour said, the scheme for an immediate emancipation and general arming of the slaves throughout the South is a proposal for the butchery of women and children, for scenes of lust and raping, of arson and murder, unparalleled in the history of the world. I want to include this one because we don't really understand the full dimension of white supremacy until we realize it's not just inferiority that's placed onto black humanity, but it's this presumption of dangerousness. It's this casting black people not only as inferior, but as a fundamental threat to the white way of life. And it's what sets the stage. You can't understand some of the challenges around police brutality or the incarceration problem without realizing how deep this storyline goes of portraying black people as fundamentally dangerous. And this is one of the just real clear ways that a public politician has showed that. Let's go to Andrew Jack, Andrew Johnson, 1865. Um, these next two, I'm not even gonna just say much. They just so clearly speak to the way white supremacy assigns superior value to whiteness, inferior value to blackness. It is vain to deny that black Americans are an inferior race, very far inferior to the, inferior to the European variety. They have learned in slavery all that they know in civilization hard to say the core roots of white supremacy more clearly than that. Theodore Roosevelt, same. A perfectly stupid race can never rise to a very high plane. The Negro, for instance, has kept, been kept down as much by lack of intellectual development as by anything else. Right, just this durable, unrelenting, unbroken set of lies that gets communicated over and over and over about white superiority, black inferiority. 1912, Woodrow Wilson. I stand for the national policy of exclusion. We cannot make a homogenous population of people who do not blend with the Caucasian race. Oriental coolism will give us yet another problem and surely we have already had our lesson. Now, I don't in any ways want to sound like I'm minimizing the impact that white supremacy has had historically and in present times on Latin, Latino folks, Latino folks, Asian American folks. Um, what I'm trying to show is that it's built on these bookends of black inferiority and white supremacy. And then from there, depending on where we're at in history, it's applied to other groups. So what he's saying here is we've already learned a lesson. We call it the one drop rule. We don't want intermixing between white and black. So now that we understand how scary that was to have white and black people intermarry, now we can apply that to the surging um, Asian American population here. We don't want their blood to, to pollute ours either. I know we need to wrap up here. Um, I'll, I'll do these. I'll do. I'll, I'll, go, I'll do these very quickly. 1949. Alan Ellender makes kind of another, just uh, accentuates this a little bit in a different way. The Negro himself cannot make progress unless he has white leadership. If you call that supremacy, well, suit yourself. But I say that the, the Negro race as a whole, if permitted to go to itself, will invariably go back to barbaric lunacy. Right, so notice how barbaric lunacy attached to the black experience, white leadership, the need for that. And, you know, I think white supremacy would say that's true for everybody. Just again, very clearly articulating this. Thomas Pickens Brady, you can dress a chimpanzee, housebreak him, and teach him to use a knife and a fork. But it will take countless generations of evolutionary development, if ever, before you can convince him that a caterpillar or a cockroach is not a del delicacy. Likewise, the social, political, economic, and religious preferences of the Negro remain close to the caterpillar and the cockroach. The short commentary on that one, white supremacy dehumanizes people and increases the dehumanization as you go down the racial hierarchy. One of the classic ways to do this is to compare people groups to animals. And I hope you can make the connections between how that was happening in the 50s and how it's still happening even in our today's day and age.
1960, Leander Perez. Don't wait for your daughters to be raped by the Congolese, his term for black people. Don't wait until the burrheads are forced into your schools. Do something about it now. I want to include this one because it reminds us the ideology of white supremacy can be espoused by anybody, not just white people. Right, this was a son of Latino immigrants who said this. And anti-blackness is something that every immigrant group has to contend with when they come into the white supremacy system that we're in. Two more, more moving into modern times. Richard Nixon said this. He was, it was in his term where Roe versus Wade famously was um, decided on. He was asked if there's ever a time when abortion is necessary. Very sensitive topic, I realize. I'm just trying to highlight the white supremacy part of this. He said, I know there are times when abortions are necessary. Rape or when you have an interracial pregnancy between a black and a white person. Now you see how 160 years earlier, Thomas Jefferson said amalgamation between these two groups is a degradation. And how 160 years later, Richard Nixon is essentially saying the same thing, saying that it's even abortion worthy if the one drop rule gets put into effect, right? That's not very long ago. And then again, this isn't a political statement. This is just showing the consistency with this. D President Donald Trump has oftentimes referred to the racial hierarchy of white supremacy. I think one of the more clear ones is when he said, we don't want immigrants from, pardon my language, but we don't want immigrants from shithole places like Haiti and Africa. We need immigrants in places like Norway. It would be hard to more perfectly describe the narrative of racial hierarchy that makes white supremacy work when you say we don't want immigrants in black places like the country of Haiti or the actual entire continent of Africa. We do want immigrants from places like, you know, stereotypically it'd be hard to think of a more white place than, you know, something like Norway, right? Saying we want more, more immigrants from places like this. Again, I realize this is very heavy. This is kind of at a moment where we just need to sit in the gravity of this. My intention in doing this is to show how durable this set of lies has been. Um, we should stand up to it here and now, but we also have to realize this thing literally has got a 400 year, 400 year head start. This is enemy territory. This is the father of lies protecting these lies at all costs. And of course, Jesus would care about that because Jesus is truth, right? The truth, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. I am the way, the truth, and life, he says in John chapter 14. We can't know him without exposing lies and standing up for the truth. And here's the embarrassing reality of the current state of things in the United States of America. White supremacy is rampant everywhere. There's no question around that. But one of the most difficult places to tell the truth about white supremacy and expose the lies of it is in the church. That is one of the hardest places to have honest conversation about the lies that sustain white supremacy. How do we hope anything's gonna change when we can't boldly and courageously and clearly illuminate the lies that sustain this supernatural evil? Look, even when we can name the lie, there's still gonna be a lot of work. This is gonna be the two strongest forces in the universe going toe to toe over this truth and lie. But when we can't even reveal the lie, and tell the truth about it, we have no chance. We have no chance. Jesus says, go out there and have authority over demonic powers. We're deciding if we're brave enough to talk about it because the people from the dominant culture might leave if we talk about it, right? That's what's happening in most places. So I thank you for your church for having the courage to say this, to say, uh-uh, we ain't playing around with this thing, right? There's important political realities, important sociological realities, important ways we live this out. But man, at the starting point is Jesus saying, I will not tolerate lies. I will not tolerate demonic powers calling my people something different than they are. Elevating one group, demonizing another group, pitting everybody else in between to this. No, those are lies. 
And the Jesus Christ who is truth will never tolerate that. So will you please continue to be truth tellers? Don't ever oversimplify how important telling the truth is. Don't ever oversimplify how important revealing lies is. That's where the evil one traffics, right? When you do something as simple as expose a lie and tell the truth, you have declared war on enemy territory. And I want to pray for you as you continue to do that important work because we need a critical mass of Christ followers across this nation to expose these lies, to tell the truth, and to follow Jesus in the, in the work he's already doing. So let me pray with you and over you right now. Dear God, I thank you for New Community Covenant Church. I thank you for Pastor Peter Hall. I thank you for the elders and the leadership team and the staff of this church. I thank you for every member in congregant here. Let them remember that even as we're talking about the potent danger of these lies, the truth is that each one of, each person listening to this is a beloved son or daughter. There's nothing more true than that. For some, they've been told they're less than and they need to recover that truth of who they are that's found in you. For some, they've been told that their value comes not from who they are as a child of God, but who they are as a white person. And we need to unhook and decouple from that and find that sense of belovedness in you and not through the mythology of the lies of white supremacy. So God, we've said a lot, but let us sit in the simplicity of this. Lies are of the devil. And the devil wants to steal and kill and destroy with those lies. The devil's been a murderer from the beginning. He is the father of lies. His native tongue is that of lies. He wants to kill us with his lies. You, however, are truth. And truth brings freedom. It brings liberation. And we need, to, we need to be done with this playfulness, with playing patty cake with these demonic principalities that lie and lie and lie about human value. We must expose it for what it is. And by your power, we need to rise up in truth and stand up against this evil that continues to advance in a nearly unchecked manner generation after generation here. May there be a genuine revival of confession of sin and of lies and a proclamation of truth and liberation and freedom. May we say, Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church, we love you. We know you're reconciling all things to yourself. May you be the one who has supremacy over all things. In Jesus' name we pray.